let's use the example of, and this is very common for our program. Like we will go at spikers. Like we love making spikers, turning them into shooters, right? So I'm just using those categories of offensive types, right? So for a spiker, traditionally, like you'll see a lot of combination athletes, outside hitters that are playing left side, they like kicking out, right? So we will serve deep right shoulder seam at a left side player, right? So we'll try to pinch them in, take away that that kick out approach so we can read their body line a little bit better, right? Because on the angle as a right-handed player, you've got a lot of options, right? You can go body line cross, you can turn it, you can tool it, you can hip pivot. There's just so much range. So if we can eliminate that angle body line and turn it into more of like a stacked approach and make hitters hit thumb down where there's a little bit less control, there's a net that gets in the way, there's a block that could get you, that helps us because then we can kind of read the pattern of shot a little bit better. Mark Burrick, and here at Better at Beach, we do and give everything that you could possibly use to get better at beach volleyball, whether you're a coach or a player or you're just a fan. Uh, we have podcasts, we have online courses, we have camps, clinics, classes, and uh, a pretty cool YouTube channel where we get to host some awesome guests like we have today. So today uh, we have our guest, Mike Campbell, who has been at the helm of Long Beach State University, a storied university, especially uh, in terms of volleyball. He's been there for eight years and he is also coaching at the professional level, the AVP level. So we're going to have some really cool and unique insights about the differences between club, college, pro and of course elite performance so newly made father big congrats to him and uh husband and super coach mike campbell welcome what's going on Mark, man? thanks for having me man I, I gotta give a big shout out to your team and yourself for getting me on the podcast and the show I'm, I'm really excited to be here i think there's just you know beach volleyball has done so much for me so i'm, I'm super excited to share some of what I've gone through and some of my, you know, ideas around the sport. Uh, I'm looking forward to a great talk. Hell yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. It is going to be a great talk. We are, we already talked off camera and congratulations. Uh, your son is now just over a month old. Is that right? Five weeks. I, I, I hate to correct you already, but I, I'm a father of two. So I've been through this already once my with bad. a two and a half year old right now. And, and yeah, five weeks. And, and let me tell you to all those parents out there, man, I, I, I don't know how you guys do it, but uh, two kids is something something else. So we're my wife and I are, are are sorting our way through it. You probably attend more volleyball tournaments than than our average listener, and they attend a lot. <laughs> and you've got uh, two kids, young. How, do you have any one piece of advice for <laughs> parents who are, who are running off and and trying to balance their volleyball life and passion? with uh, being great parents? Oh man, this, this, you're, you're opening a can of worms. I think the, the, the two things I would say is, you know, is make sure your partner knows what they're getting into when you marry. I married a, an absolutely supportive woman who, who understood what the life of a coach looks like. You know, like you said, traveling almost every weekend, either with it, with an AVP team or my beach team or a club team, or just something volleyball is going on every weekend, which is also cool because you know it's beach volleyball and I can bring my family to it and that's that's been fun but you don't get to you don't get to celebrate certain things like Easter I don't think I've celebrated Easter the last eight years just because we've always had volleyball you know we've always had 
Long Beach State Beach Volleyball in season. And then the second thing is just routines. You know, routines as a, as a, I'm sure you know, as an athlete are huge and routines as a coach are really, really big. And try your best to respect the routine because when you start changing things on the fly, you're harming somebody in your life, you know, whether it be a family, a friend, a, a partner, um, not harming in the physical way, but, you know, you're taking your time away from them when they were counting on you. So, you know, those two things have been absolutely huge for me to balance it all and to be respectful of, you know, those in my life. And so that way I'm fully present when I'm with my wife on that Sunday, that one Sunday off between January and May, my phone as much as I can stays put away. So I'm not answering a work email or I'm not dealing, you know, putting out a very small fire that one of my players is having, you know, I, I I'm trying to, um, offload some of those things on those days. So it's been, it's been a challenge. Like you said, eight years, it's felt like a long time, but you know, those two things have really helped me. The routine kind of hits me hard. I am a very, very seat of my pants type person. (laughs) It makes the people who are are working on my team struggle because I'll come up with an idea. I'll knock out 60% of it and they won't even know what happened. (laughs) and then we'll be sort of behind or in a mess and then my wife she loves planning and I personally feel like you know I've never had to take anyone else's schedule into account and so I'm consistently failing but consistently attempting to improve uh communication of where I'm gonna be some weekend how we're going to balance a, a travel schedule with three to four families we both got like siblings everywhere and families but we're still working out the calendar thing you know should we do a google shared calendar should we do a a written calendar and where does it all get written so how do you stick to a routine and what do you mean by routine when your life is literally could be anywhere any weekend and depending on your teams if they win or not that routine or it changes your schedule changes Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, especially with what we see on the AVP, right? When you're playing in a tournament that at any point you can get knocked out and and, and the schedule, you know, in those circumstances, sometimes the schedule changes for the better. So, so, you know, however much my wife is rooting for us, sometimes she enjoys an early 0-2 loss and sends me home on a Saturday. You know, I haven't had a lot of those, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately for her. Um, But you're right, you know, it's hard to create the routines. I think for me, it's just, you know, we, we look at things a little bit ahead of time. You know, my wife is sounds very similar to you. She, she, she likes to be a little more spontaneous, whereas I'm a creature of habit and I like to kind of get into a routine. It just helps me stay on track. That's something I learned in college when I was, you know, a player and I worked for the women's team and I had to pay, you know, work multiple other jobs to pay for tuition and housing and whatnot. Just having a great idea, but, but operating at less than hundred percent efficiency for me, I wouldn't put in my best work. And so in college, I learned, you know, to, to be at my best, I needed to, hey, these were the hours I'm working and these were the hours I was studying and these were the hours I needed to focus on volleyball. Because if I was at volleyball practice yeah. and I was worried about that tuition payment that I didn't have enough money for, and then I had to go do some tutoring that night, and I couldn't watch film or whatever it was, right? I started fraying and and then my, my you know, my buckets were just too full and I was getting super stressed dealing with lots of anxiety and things like that. So mental health, it it took a a dive. So I kind of used some of those experiences in college where I definitely failed and had many regrets. And now as a coach, a partner, you know, a husband and whatnot, I'm trying to, to implement some structure. And, and, and like I said, me being a creature of habit, having certain organizational skills that I've learned, it is, it can get boring. Let's just put it, let's put it simply, right? It can get boring doing the same thing every day for me. 
knowing there's an, you know, there's a goal. I, I believe that I can get there. It makes it worth it. But like you said, we need to be spontaneous just as human beings. I think that's healthy to get various, you know, hormones in your body, just, just to dial those things in for yourself of joy and to release that. I think it's important to have those, those outlets. So, you know, there's a balance. So I, I don't want to sit here and say that we, my wife and I aren't spontaneous and me as a coach, we don't do something every now and then in practice that's completely off the, the routine. But I do think just having that, that, that big picture structure helps guide and then recalibrate, which is the biggest thing that I like to do is at the end of the year, reflect on what, you know, where were our strengths, where were our weaknesses? What did we, like you said, what was a great idea that we had that we know we can accomplish, but we didn't get, you know, to hundred percent efficiency and, and can we get there or was the idea too grand in the beginning and we need to scale it back? I don't even know if I've answered your question at this point, but I think we were talking about routines. And we are. Yeah. No, I and, think, and, and I I've got a, Sorry to sorry. Let me finish this up. From a performance standpoint, I think for me, getting a routine lets me get laser focused on something and give the best that I can for that, you know, area. When you're creating a routine or a structure, you said you know we put some things into into play, and then we need to measure it. How far down the road do you look? Do you plan? You know, when you're when you're assessing your team, because you've got a bunch of teams at Long Beach and yeah. you're currently working with one team, Troyfield and Chase Budinger on the AVP tour. So you probably assess and then how far down the road do you stick to one plan and then choose to reassess or or do you allow yourself to reassess in the middle of that? So do you set do you set a certain time limit for for those uh, changes, game changes, implementations? Yeah. Yeah. That's what a great thought. We, we, you know, the 10,000 foot view is always there, right? Me looking at a, at a college athlete who enters as a freshman and we want to graduate as a senior, you know, we, that, I think that view is a little bit more about us as human beings. Um, just making sure that we are what we call leading generative lives. And so at our program, we want, we want our players when they leave, you know, four years down the road, we want them to be generating more than they're consuming. And that's like super, super broad. So that's kind of that view. And so I know that there are so many factors and little, you know, things that that will 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 stop us or help us. And, and but but I do know that from year one to year four, from freshman fall to graduation, that's the expectation. And and, and then the role that they take on, I, you know, that's hard for me to predict that, you know, at, at the beginning of their career. Right. However, at the end of their career, I know that I can guarantee they will be courageous. They will be leading generative lives. They will be you know, giving and being aware of that right now, like you said, with the AVP team, Troy and Chase, it's completely different, right? We, at any given note or any point in time, we, we, we don't know that partnership might dissolve, right? The, the, I don't have the control that I have, like I do at my college program, right? We, one bad tournament, something said, a guy can back out and go, Hey, I'm going to try something different. Do you think that's good about the AVP or do you think that's bad? Man, you know, it, it definitely adds a layer of uncertainty. I would imagine, I mean, you, I will ask you the same question in a second. I, I wonder as a, as a coach, I think it's tough because, you know, this is my livelihood. I'm signing on to a team where we, I, w- I want continuity. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, like we're talking about, I would like to see something through from day one to, you know, day, or I guess on the AVP from, from month one to month four, or for me, right. For my right. scope is, is the summer. That's what I'm signing up for. And so 
as a player, I think it might be different. I think as players, maybe it's nice to be on edge knowing like, hey, I got to perform. I'm playing up with someone. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, I'm getting my crack at it. Or maybe you're the opposite role and you're like, hey, I've I've got the pedigree and I'm taking a risk on you. If you don't bring it, you're out. I'm finding someone else, you know. So I think there's such a vast scale on the AVP because you're you're a vet. You You've seen you've worked your way through from when you graduated your, you know, your collegiate team and moved through the beach at different points in your career. I'm sure you felt this, but I think it probably, depending on who you ask, it could hurt or it could help. And mm. it just depends where you're at on that spectrum of experience and talent, right? Because maybe if you're an experienced player taking a risk on a younger guy, you want the freedom to say, Hey, if it's, if you're not putting the work and I'm seeing you out partying every day and, and I'm in the gym and you're not showing up, you're bailing on practices. Maybe you want the freedom to back out. Whereas maybe if you're an international team or one of those top four us teams and you're trying to, you know, make it internationally and qualify for Paris or whatever your international goals are, maybe there needs to be a layer of continuity and a layer of trust for team building reasons so that you go, Hey, maybe we didn't accomplish our goals, AVP 2022, but knowing our goal is to qualify for 2024, we need to have a really solid 23 qualifying year. Let's learn from our failures. Let's learn from those gaps in communication or whatever expectations and let's move forward. So I don't know. I think that there's a definite spectrum for that. What do you, what do you think? I mean, in terms of, I think that the majority of the players in our country, AVP, they don't stick together long enough to embrace system development and go through it in a way. When you look at an NBA team or, or an NFL team, you kind of give somebody like a year, sometimes maybe two, to learn the system, you know, to, to work with a new yeah. offensive coordinator or get involved there. And yeah, there's instances where somebody gets two weeks up at the show and then they're back down, you know and you got that one chance to perform with the team, but also those teams are all working on their systems long-term and trying to integrate them. So I, I think players break up too much and I know usually why they do, you know, you, you want to win the dollar value is sometimes in your mind, even though it's like arguing over pennies, you know, <laughs> but the, the difference of, of the qualifier, I think a lot of the shuffles happen right at the, the yeah. bubble qualifier, like w right where I am right now, where it's like, you know, if I play with this guy, I'm just automatically in. So I save a day of hotels, a day of travel. I have definite money. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a gamble anymore. It's at least now my travel and everything is covered. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're, then you start measuring like, and I'm saving energy. But I think the older that I get now, I'm a, a lot less concerned with that and more, who do I want to play with and who do I think I can actually be good with hmm. instead of how good are they? I used to look as a younger players, how good are they? Now I look at who I can be good with. Like, wh what do I, what am I not so great at and what do I pad at? Like me, digs per game, great. Hitting percentage, historically, like lower middle third digs per game, always high part of the tournament and hitting percentage is a huge part of it. So I need somebody who's going to generate points in aces and blocks to pad my hitting percentage. So if you're not wow. a great server or big time blocker, I don't know if we're going to be a good partnership, you know? So I, I look at it like that a little bit more. And, and I do think that players don't figure each other out enough. They don't have the one-on-one -on -one difficult conversations of 
even where you want to be emotionally, you know? Uh, and I think yeah. coaches, that third voice, having somebody like you out there saying, what emotion do you want to represent? How does that make you feel? Where do you want that? The, the times when we've had third parties look at our game, that's when you realize that you've been doing completely opposite things in opposite directions <laughs> for months. And you're like, sure. oh, what? You want that ball there? Yeah. Why didn't you ever tell me that? You just always thought I was missing by five feet every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really cool concept. You bring up that that compliment, you know, complimenting your strengths, right? Like, like you said, if you're very high in digs per set, low in hitting percentage, you need probably a really good setter, put you in good spots. You need someone who's creating points from the end line. I mean, I think you having the wealth of knowledge that you have to look at it and just the maturity to look at it that way is, is such a, you know, valuable thing that would help in partnership creation, right? Where you, you brought up another good point. You don't have these playbooks. You don't have, like you brought up the NBA NFL. That's something that I have the beauty of with Long Beach is we have like a 50 page playbook, like literally two, sorry, it's a handbook and a technical manifest is what I've called them. And the handbook is every single skill of beach volleyball that we teach written out with YouTube clips, with game clips with links to various videos of professional and collegiate athletes. You know, this was built by myself, my assistant, by players. It's a, it's a live document. Every year it changes, you know, we change terminologies. So we update the handbook. Then we have the technical manifest, which is a little bit for your, you know, your one, your ones and twos are like, we know this stuff. We've learned it through experience. Your threes, fours, fives, some of the, the, I call them the transplants, the indoor combo kids that end up transplanting and then just becoming beach only because it's just such a fun sport and they're, they're getting more you know more looks there they they look at it like hold on a second this is 100 miles per hour i'm going zero maybe five miles per hour i need a, a year to digest this so we don't force that on them right away mm -hmm. but then they get a couple matches under their belt and they're like okay we need some technical stuff we need some tactical stuff we need a little bit more than just pass set side out or serve hard or block, et cetera. Right. So um, we have both those things and that's stuff that professional AV play, AVP players don't have, because like you said, uh, you, you just, the, there's so many breakups that how much of that information do you want to share and how much of that information do you even put out there? Right. Like for, I think what I've noticed is, and you touched on it is that emotional side is such a big aspect of uh, partnership in that, at that professional level, because like you said, the, I'm not intentionally trying to do this or that. I'm, I'm just trying to win. And yeah. if you don't get in tune with me or at least have a conversation with me about what's not working or where you think I'm weak, but I could easily fix it if you just tell me, but you're you afraid. Tell to, me. Yeah. You're afraid to tell me or have a hard conversation. Whereas me in that role, I mean, I, I think back when I was with working with Casey and Chase last year, we were in Atlanta and in the winter semis, we lose to try and Trevor and it wasn't windy. It was very, you know, it was hot. Don't get me wrong, but it was, it was doable, right? There was no disadvantage on a side, but there was something going on with our setting and Casey being just a phenomenal setter, right? All he needed to hear from Chase is, dude, you're a great setter. You've got this. You can put me right where I need it. That's all he needed. And he articulated that, but those are things that I don't think a 20, 25 year vet, you know, that I'm sorry, without being a 20, 25 year vet, I don't think some of the younger players are doing that. Right. And it was just such a simple, easy conversation that led to them having that clarity. And then, boom, next thing you know, they're winning a tournament. Now, does that always lead to a winning result? I don't know. But it definitely fortified a team that was very edgy. And for me, I was like, OK, hey, I'm going to facilitate. But if they can't articulate, 
what are we here for, right? This is just, we're going to be back to square one. So it was cool to see Casey be able to have that emotional intelligence to be able to share that. That was such a simple, straightforward need that Chase easily could, you know, could do, right? It's just, hey, dude, you're great. That's all it took for Casey. Now it's different for everyone. But like you said, if you're not committing some time or you're getting in that partner shuffle, you're not giving yourself enough, you know, layers of contact or layers of opportunity to develop and or even have that conversation. Do you see pers- certain personality mixes as more successful than than other personality mixes? Now, I know you, you told me that your wife's a therapist. So when I was, I share this a lot, but I was, before I got married, I was like, let's go. It's time for training. I'm going to go to like counseling. I'm going to get the marriage therapy. I read a bunch of books on like marriage and I learned a ton of stuff that I could bring to the court. Uh-huh. And a lot of it, I was like, wow, I've never asked my partner that. I definitely haven't asked my wife that. So that's goal number one. But if I just said that or asked that on the on the court, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> so are there any combinations of personalities that you know consistently or you've seen in your career consistently don't work or two like archetypes that definitely do? Man, you know, I think... Well, using my own, I never played at a, at a high level like yourself and your peers, but using my own life and my partner with my wife, my, my relationship with my wife, like we are complete opposite when it comes to sport. I think that is why we get along so well when, it, when we have conversations about sport. That helped me. She never played volleyball. She, you know, played sports as a, as a, as a, in high school. And I think collegiately she played on a, on a tennis team at, at Santa Barbara City College, et cetera. But, you know, she was so hungry and eager to learn about my area of expertise. And then likewise for me to her that we just, we meshed really well. Now, as I kind of transpose that onto beach volleyball, you know, I think of great partnerships in the past and you've got, I mean, there's such a variety of, of, of personalities. I don't think I can nail, you know, drive down on one archetype, but I do think there has to be a balance. You know, I don't think, two fiery players, I think, you know, that are trying to both get spotlight and both get some of the accolades. I think that can butt heads at times. I Would think you consider you- Casey fiery? To me, I think he's consistent. You know, like maybe when he came out, people would look at him and be like, dude's fiery. He's so emotional. Yeah. But when he stays at such a high, like when you're looking at him, such a high emotional level of noise and thing, I don't consider him fiery to me fiery is more like a little bit up and down i don't i know that that's interrupting but would you consider him like fiery i feel like he's um, just so consistent yeah you know I, I i consider him one of the the best volley like the epitome of beach volleyball trash talk and responding in a healthy way to it so i don't know if that can be categorized into one word but i think he is one of the best at involving the crowd feeding off the crowd listening to the crowd you know because he's looking for those people that are talking crap and he he gets you know he dialogues them which i think is really cool you know it's such an inclusive environment as a fan right mike jordan type deal yeah you're talking to me what wait you're a pro (laughs) athlete and you're listening to me like i think that's pretty cool so i think he fed off all of that and like you said to me it comes off as fire maybe i'm miss miss you know mistakenly using that word but i think like the energy that he has complemented Chase really well, right? Where, where, you know, Chase is naturally a little more reserved, doesn't really play with 
big emotions or small emotions, just is very, you know, he's focused on winning. He's focused on, you know, performance and, um, you know, his competitiveness is there and that can be misinterpreted. Sometimes, you know, he doesn't talk. Sometimes he's not high five and whatever. Right. But I think Casey being able to like in those moments where Chase got quiet, bring out a little bit of that energy from Chase. There was, you know, again, I, I bring up Atlanta where we played Try and Trevor again in the finals and we were like, dude, you got to go into this and we got to have fiery chase and what do you know first second play of the game he blocks try or i'm sorry trevor and gives him a stare down through the net and i from my seat i was like okay we got this like that is very rare to see and so when we have that understanding from one partner and it matches and complements the other partner for that moment because you know casey was getting every serve right casey was the focal point of these matches he had to make plays on defense he had to side out he had to serve the ball well like there was so much he had to do that in that moment we we compromised toward casey's side of what he needed and he was like hey we're going to need to be a little bit more edgy and a little bit more let's get the crowd involved and let's play to some of those strengths so i think in that chase plays so well at at a calm collected level where he's very straight edge you know not too many smiles, not too many mm-hmm. like reactions where he's pissed off, then wouldn't it negatively affect him if he if we we like increased his emotional level to try to match Chase or yeah. you- to match Casey? Yeah, I, I we, and that was a conversation we had. I was like, hey, is this going to be distracting to you? You know, I think that was the beauty of this team that I worked with is it was just, you know, they had already played together. Right. And then they split. So they came back together and then they having me who I traveled to every tournament and then not only got to travel, but Chase would stay with his wife, Jess, and I would stay with Casey. So there was just constant conversation, you know what I mean, about, hey, what do we need? How do you want to approach this? And it wasn't like triangulation. Let me go talk to Chase. Let me go talk to Casey. Okay, let's talk together. It was just facilitation is really the best way to say it. You know, there wasn't even mediation. I wasn't fixing anything. It was just, hey, let's let's facilitate. Let's kind of put a little bit of, you know, a spark on the fire. And then they would just keep adding, you know, gasoline, I guess would be a, I mean, I guess that's a terrible metaphor, but um, I think you understand what I'm trying to get at, right. Is they would just keep providing the fuel for these conversations. And, and so, yeah, you know, initially I thought because of my experience with, with college, I was like, okay, yeah, that can be so distracting, right. Is, is if I'm a, a, you know, a naturally steady player, but I got playing with a partner who's just high and low and high. And I'm like, dude, just get with me. Like we're going to win if you can just stay here. And we're asking that player to go super high. You know, it could be it could be tough, right? It's asking too much. But I think, again, knowing I'm dealing with a professional athlete who, you know, again, special circumstance, Chase has played in the NBA and had, you know, layers and layers of competitive experience and maturity there. I think he handled that ask very well. Right. And it didn't it didn't hurt his game in that moment. And then knowing Chase, I think you know, sometimes when he does get a little quiet is when he's internalizing some things. So I just tried to, I was like, this is, this is a win. It's a win-win, right? You're going to help your partner. You're also going to stay super engaged on the strategy that I'm giving you or the tactics of blocking or whatever it was. Um, So it, so it ended up being a really good thing for this pair. Now, hypothetical, if I'm dealing with someone who can't handle that, I think we have to maybe compromise a little differently, right? There's got to be a little bit of give the other way. You know, I think that's a, you know, you just have that conversation and decide and then, with with trial and error, it's a little easier as a college coach to, to you know have trial and error because you practice five days a week. You've got, right. like you said, I have 24 players, so that's 12 pairs that I can compete with and play with and tinker with. Whereas on the AVP, it's you and your partner, and you're practicing what three to four days a week, and you're playing one other team. You know, you want to make the most of that day, 
So sometimes you want to do it your way and you don't want to compromise. It's just not worth it because you're there to get better or whatever, right? You're working on one skill or one aspect of your, excuse me, one aspect of your game. But I think in this specific scenario, working with those two, two men, it was, it was, it was really beneficial to make that ask to chase to come out a little bit show a little bit of that fire because then it just kind of shut the door on what try and trevor did really well you know what i mean which is a little bit of that chirping and so it was nice to play with that level of intensity against guys who usually do that against every other team you know and it only worked you know worked that time right they ended up beating us in other tournaments and so it's 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 not foolproof but i think it's a good starting point to get players to play at a higher level or at least to try to find that, you know, so it's not an anomaly, right? When they're just bumping up and winning matches against top teams, we don't want that. We want that to be the standard baseline is that performance. And the anomaly is beating them in two or, you know, beating them with a couple break point advantages, right? Winning four or five points. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when you're, when you're beating a team by four or five, you're doing something right. Right. That's yeah, four. Yeah. You're, you're, 21, you're, 17 win is a demolishment. Exactly. 21, right. Is the, 20, the 21, 10 win is a little scary. Cause you know, they're coming back and have you, I think Theo Brunner has a, a theory about that. I, I, have you ever heard that or no? No, but he, I'm very interested. You got to get talk to him. I heard it in passing from someone else, but he says, you know, if you lose by more than 12, you're pretty much guaranteed, or I'm sorry, if you lose by more than 12, you're pretty much guaranteed to win the next set. He, he again, he will be your expert on that. So I hint at that. So now and all these listeners are going to go bug him about it, which I'm sure he'll love. <laughs> it's all, it's that hot hand theory. Um, you know, when like a percentage that you'll make a foul shot is always the same, right? If you're a 67% foul shooter, you're always the same, but then over time, will it like slide back? My college coach said something very similar He uh, to our setters. He goes, if somebody who is a, a 400 hitter gets blocked or stopped two or three times in a row, you have to set them again yeah. <laughs> because statistically, like he's supposed to come back on that next one and for the next couple after that. Yeah. Yeah. So it would, I think that statistical flow would work, but then there's, there's that bias in there where it's like, well, percentages are percentages and they're, they can be microcosms, but they work out over time as well. So yeah. I, I think that's, I think your coach is, is, is very similar to me. I'm the same way. I would, I would, I would set my guy over and over and over again. If I needed to, to get that, we'll find that percentage, right? Two, three errors. All right. Those are his three for the match. We're getting seven kills here somehow. Right. That's it's a big thing that I'll, I'll tell my partners. Like, look, if we get wiped, it's like, you know, we're not this bad. Yeah. So it's like we've gotten rid of all of the bad that we have for this match. So now, now we can just ride it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's usually a good, good feeling. Have you, how much do you modulate people's energy like that? Especially maybe on, on your college team, because you have, like you said, so many different athletes that you can. So do you take somebody who's getting too fired up and, bring them back down because you know that it'll be harmful to their game. I think a lot of people default to fired up. Like they want to be excited and, and yeah. go into the game with high energy. But I, I know for myself that I actually don't play my best when I'm fired up. I play my best when I'm, I've got a high tension, but I'm not just going nuts, you know? So how much do you, do you modulate your players? And is it, their energy and emotions and is it different between ncaa and avp yeah so i'm going to try to stay on topic because that's a that's a great question and i like you said there's a lot, a lot of directions i go i learned this really cool system from jeff alzina he was our volunteer 
you know, a handful of years ago, right before he started helping out UCLA. Now he's at Santa Clara as the head coach, but he had, you know, a wealth of experience um, working with professional athletes. And so I asked him, I said, Hey, what, you know, our team at the time was like you said, it was, it was roller coaster. We were talent second to none. We were a great talented team, but our performance was, you know, one day we're beating the, you know, a pair against UCLA or USC, but then the next game we're dropping to an unranked team that we're like nine, 99 times out of hundred, we probably beat that team, but that was the one time out of hundred we lose. And so he gave me this system of red and blue, right? Just using colors, right? Red are the, the some of the, the high fiery emotions. Blue is some of the calm, cool, collected flow state emotions. So he gave us these lists. And so these players started, you know, thinking about, oh yeah, you're right. I got really red for that match. And so that was easy for us because as college coaches, you can't really, it's a little different on the AVP as a coaches, but as college coaches, you can't really give much other than just cheering, right? So mid rally during, or I guess between rallies, it's just, hey, great job. So we started kind of little gray area. We would say, hey, let's stay blue. You know what I mean? So ref had no <laughs> idea what we were saying, but that would remind players that we need to stay a little bit more calm in this moment. And then conversely, you know, we, some moments I was like, we got to get red. Like we got to get a little fiery, get a little angry, but then let's settle back into blue at some point. So everybody was kind of, you know, me, you know, their, their, their mean, their average would, would eventually end up in the blue, but there were moments where, you know, I tell my players, Hey, if you need to throw sand or kick a ball, then, then emote, like, I want you to be authentic and do that, but I need you to have the emotional intelligence and the IQ and maturity to, to circle back and get back into a state of mind where, you know, you're going to perform at your best. And I think that. So you're okay with the, the pressure valve release when Absolutely. somebody's like, ah, and then they can come I mean, back. I, I, I personify my anger. I, I call it Miguel. I go, I don't know why I go that way, but I, I've just Michael and Miguel. I don't know. It's just for me, it, I, I give it, you know, so anytime, you know, I'm in practice or when I was younger and playing and not doing something great, I would just grab my shirt. I think I learned this from Kobe. I'd grab it, bite my shirt and scream into my shirt, Miguel. Nobody knew what I was doing. I didn't want to use foul language. I knew, you know, as a collegiate athlete, I knew there was an image we wanted to maintain. Um, but it was my release. And it, in every, I mean, I can't give you specific examples, but I know mentally after that, it, it helped me quite a bit. I just remember vividly the, the emotional side of things. I might've shanked the next ball, but that was just because they hit a good serve or whatever. Like it wasn't because I was pissed. Yeah. And everybody I, from I the outside is looking like, Oh, he lost it when yeah, like, yeah. really you had come back. No, afterwards. no, exactly. For me, I felt good. I didn't, again, it didn't mean it wasn't a, a, a sure thing, surefire method for me to win a match or to score the next point. But it, it, I knew that whatever I did, I would be operating at a little bit of a, of a, a cleaner mindset and I'd be more aware, right? Present is the big, you know, the, the hip term right now. I would be a little more present in that, in that regard. When I played 10 years ago, we didn't, you know, we didn't talk about, I, I came in at UCLA playing for skates. We didn't talk about anything that had to do with mental health. It was just show up, you play, you compete, you watch some film. He was big on film. You watch some film, you show up the next day, you do it again, right? There wasn't, Hey, how are you feeling today? You know, is feeling some anxiety, some stress. No, no, no. You, you, you checked all that at the door and you just, I'm sure it was the same for you, right? You just, uh, and that, I think that's been destigmatized over time. I think there's a lot more focus on flow state and getting yourself into that zone, right. Um, of high performance where, you know, I can't, I can probably count on my hand five times or less that I ever actually felt that. And I think some players get it a lot and some players never get it, you know? And, and so I, I try to teach the, you know, so you, your original question, how do I modulate that with the athletes? I think with the collegiate athletes, it's an awareness building exercise of just okay. start the conversation with them. Hey, look, here's a match. 
you were really, really great, but how much of it was skill and how much of it was anger or frustration? You know what I mean? And yeah. is that the way you want it to look for the rest of your season or for so you your- do have that conversation oh. of what emotions were you feeling? Do you want to repeat that? Did yep. it did it match your performance? And was that the reason that you performed like that? Correct. I think that's something that we always will debrief is, you know, Christian, my, my assistant and myself and our volunteer, whoever it is at the time, we, we you know, I try to to use those as opportunities, because, again, if for us and the way we build our program, we're not winning a lot of those matches when we go really red and fiery and angry, okay. like we're just not winning those matches. Those are the, usually the matches where we get ourselves in the third game and then we need a little bit of wherewithal to focus and re reframe and kind of resort ourselves, repackage some things. And then we end up losing those games 16, 14 or 17, 15 with an accumulation of errors at the end, right? Like we would be up 14, 11 and drop the game 17, 15 down the stretch, right? Or we'd be up 13, 12. We need, or sorry, 13, 11. We need a couple side outs and they break they you know, they get a few break points on us late in the game. Right. So we were, we were identifying those as opportunities to, Hey, let's debrief on this. Instead of talking about, you should have hit this on game point. You should let's talk about the emotional side of it and say, Hey, was that the way you want to replicate games moving forward? Did you feel under control is, you know, the highs are those, are, are those places that we can replicate when you are feeling some of those emotions. So a lot of it, like I said, I keep using that word emotional intelligence. We're trying to build, um, you know, a, a rapport and a language around that where we can talk about that as something that's normal, normal. You know what I mean? It's, it's yep. just, it's, that's just what we talk about as opposed to what it is right now, where I think there's this stigma around, Hey coach, I'm a little angry. I don't know how to, you know, should I, should I hide that? Or I'm a little sad. Should I just check that at the door and never deal with that? I think we're trying to destigmatize that a little bit. Cause again, our program, we have to be high thinkers. We have to be problem solvers. We have to be in tune with some of those things. Um, you know, and I use the example, like I think one of our program is one of the best when it comes to win strategy and playing in the wind. We practice from one to 4 PM oh, every geez. day. We get this that it's wind huge, central in Southern California, you know, you, and we did that for a number of years. So my seniors this year, you know, we played a tournament down at Rosie's dog beach in long beach here and it got really, really windy and we're playing some top teams and we just, it just felt comfortable, you know? And so I knew then that we were not red. We were very blue. We we're very calm. We were, we were thinking through strategies and service locations. And just as a coach, when you don't have the ability to tell them every point, what to do, seeing your team doing what you're thinking they should do, or at least doing a, a, a training method that we've implemented in practice, it, it, it gives you, you know, the confidence to know that they are present. And then we only have three coaches, five courts playing at a time. I can now leave that court and go to another court with confidence, knowing, OK, we might lose, we might win, but at least we're going to do it with control. And the next time we play, it can be a tactical thing. Hey, let's try these tactics next time. Whereas if it's an emotional thing as a coach, I'm like, you know, you guys got to be able to articulate your emotions so we can kind of better approach it next time. Well, is there I mean, because there's two things that I always think of when emotions like how much are you going to let it affect you? Because if we, if we talk about a kind of therapy and meditation, it's recognizing the emotion that I'm feeling and just recognizing it, you know, trying not to attach yourself to it or, or, or ride the wave necessarily. So once somebody recognizes that they're mad, are they supposed to ride that and behave a different way? Or are they supposed to recognize it, then be like, I'm mad and ditch it and then come yeah. back to a certain center? 
which yeah. which should they be doing? What what do you, what do you preach yeah. as a as a well? Teacher? So that's where we we have those conversations for you know. I think you have to cater for us. We have to kind of meet players halfway, if not a little bit more toward what they're most comfortable with at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, I feel as a coach, it's always my job to kind of pull them to the edge of their comfort zone and keep them right on their edge. So balancing that is tough, right? I have a player at the ones this year who who is just, just. I, I mean, I guess a, a pair, I should say. My, my blocker was, she's from Italy. She's got tons of experience, international, playing FIVB, whatever but she just said, I just need to side out. I just need to serve. Like she would package things so simply in her mind. Like we are losing because I did not side out. Whereas the other player is like, no, no, no. We're losing because we're not hustling. We're not going for balls. We're not hitting it hard enough. Like we need to have this effort mentality. We need to just go for it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I, I, keeping them together was, you know, a good learning experience for me. They didn't finish the year with terrible losses. They were a very, middle of the top 20, you know, middle of the pack team in, in, in a sense, you know, they're a top team, don't get me wrong, but they had just as many wins as just as many losses against the top 20 teams. Right. So I don't think either of their ways doing it, you know, separately was the right call. And so for me, when I'm dealing with each of those athletes, I think getting the, the higher energy output to to kind of oscillate a little bit more to find and blend with the lower and try to find that middle ground is when they played their best right so so not asking my high energy player hey you've got to just drop everything i still wanted her because that's when she felt best right that's when she was making the best Ah. running around and seeing the game you know i wanted her to be on her edge but also comfortable enough to to think clearly and tactically build patterns and recognize patterns and whatnot on defense okay. whereas my blocker said hey we've just got to serve tough keep it simple and i'm gonna pull and i was like yeah you're playing at the ones here that's not gonna work he's you know <laughs> he's playing tina gradina usc the girl can she can beat a puller right so um you know and that and that's just one example that's a big name everybody's gonna know but every single program has the ability to score so if you're not you know balancing some of that so what i learned from that pair is i think some of the simplicity is helpful some of the fire is helpful and then depending on you know which player i'm speaking to or which pair we're working with and then where we're at in the match you've got to kind of facilitate that conversation with those with those players and get them to understand this is the solution to the current problem and it could change next match right because those those external factors are different every single game right um for the for my ones pair it was a little bit about tactics hey are you guys even thinking about tactics or are you so upset that you're not siding out and keeping it simple and are you so upset that your partner's not fiery that you're not even thinking about the tactics of how to score the points right because then oh. Next thing you know, we've given up three break points. We're down on your five two on a side. Yeah, five two on a side switch, and the game is gone. We're over. You know, it's over, right? So I think it varies level to level. I think that's the biggest. I'm not trying to give a cryptic answer here, but I think it does vary within my program level to level, pair levels, right? One through five. Well, I think if somebody if somebody walks into to practice and they're like, "Coach, I'm pissed today." Yeah. Do you do you allow them to be pissy? that day because they're you know that's like where they're comfortable and what their emotional state was or do you tell them hey i get that let's find a way to drop it so that you can get back to to what our practice environment is because there's there's a lot we i mean in the last yeah five years we've brought emotions and and how everybody feels into the forefront of conversation where the gyms that we grew up in were 
hey, leave it at the door. Mm-hmm. Those problems will still be there when you get out. You can pick them up back, you know, <laughs> when you leave the gym. But here, this is how we behave. So when somebody walks into your gym and they're pissed visibly, audibly, do you allow them to, to ride the pissiness? Or do you say, you need to fix yourself right now and get on this emotional scale? Yeah, you know, it's it's that's what a great idea. I think it's hard, you know, to... It, 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 for me, it takes a lot of time to build that trust with my team, you know what I mean, to, to where they'll actually be authentic enough to share that with me. I think my assistant coach will hear that before I do, and then he'll share it with me. But, you know, I, I, I would hope that they would share it. Once they do, I think the, the conversation is let's unpack it a little bit. You know, what is what is causing it? Is it someone here? Is it your past result? You know, what, what usually volleyball, beach volleyball for our team is a safe haven, right? That is where they want to go to take out some of their frustration. That is where they want, that is their, you know, place of, That's of a calm. big usual, but then yeah. like your entire friend and peer environment is also, and your competition is also sitting there in the same gym. So sometimes, you know, another person on the team is also like uh, what you perceive as causing you stress, but eh, go on. Yeah. So it, it should be the release, you know, for the rest it. of life. But sometimes it's like you're going to the gym where the, your worst enemy that's holding you down is. <laughs> Correct. So that's, yeah, that was what I was going to get to was, you, you know, usually safe place, right? So the stress of school gone. Okay. When it is a player or a teammate that's causing the pain or the frustration, that's where we do, you know, have a conversation. Hey, you're going to make it work today. And when we're done with this, we will set up a time to have a conversation, right? Cause I don't want those conversations to happen in the middle of practice. I don't think yes. that should be the focus. I think if you're coming to practice and you haven't dealt with the conflict, you're not, it's, it, that's not how we conflict resolve. We don't do it in that moment, right? Like we're going to problem solve. We're going to try to make it work mm. to the you know benefit of the team. And if that can't happen and you're part of the problem, you're both removed. And you can, and, and we'll, you know what I mean? So we've kicked players out of practice before I've kicked pairs. We do like a field goal touch. So they basically go and run field goals until they're calm. Like we, we have all these different methods to allow them. Like I said, I allow the ball kick as long as you shag it. I allow the sand throw as long as you don't so throw it at a you know, So we, <laughs> we have some mechanisms to deal with the, the small, but when it is a big, big T like big trauma, big trouble, that's when we have to have a conversation. It can't be, we, we try to not have those conversations in that practice. We try to get away from the practice environment. I don't even like doing them in my office. Cause I think there's a, you know, some feelings around coming into your head coach's office where it can be a little bit of a scary place. So we try to do those out on campus or, you know, get a meal or do it off site, And then, you know, whatever, whoever's causing that frustration, usually everybody's there and we just hash it out. I think Sometimes. that sounds kind of like a, what I think a good marriage should be, you know, when, when you know that something's on the table or, or under the surface, it's like, but now it's not the time that we're going to deal with this. Like, let's pick a time where we can actually do it. Like, maybe we're not going to argue about this little thing in front of all our friends at dinner. Like, let's let, we'll table this till we get home or, you know, any priorities that you have in your relationship. Like, okay, but is this our priority to talk about and fix right now? Let's, yeah. If it's not, then we need to decide on a time and agree on a time when we can fix it, but we have to be here for each other now and set that. I, I don't know if you can set emotions aside or tuck them in for a little while. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Like I think of 
my wife and I, and when we fight now, and I have a two and a half year old who's starting to basically like a parrot say everything we say, right? So I'm like, okay, hey, you know, she's probably better at this. She's like, let's not, let's, she's listening, or you know, let, let's let's pack unpack this later, and then just naturally, I hear that from her a lot. I'm, we do the same with our team, and I think it's important because you know, if you're the ones pair and you're walking around with this entitlement and ego and thinking you can get away with certain things. And if I'm the fives player looking at that, or if I'm a freshman red shirt, I'm thinking that's the accepted behavior. You know, that, that is what I'm going to start naturally doing just by process of diffusion. Right. I think as a coach, I have to be very careful there, right. We cannot. And that's where some of those conversations have to happen outside of practice, because it's like, look, I get it, Mark, you're doing some great things for our program. And there's a lot of pressure on you. And it's hard. You know, our program is not like a USC where you've got just 10 players who are going to go on and play pro. And you saw, I mean, with, with the tournament AVP this weekend, there's like five or six USC players in the, in the semis are better, right? You know, p- power to them for being able to do that. But we're the type of program where, you know, our ones are going to compete with one or two other pairs in practice, maybe three. And then the rest of our team are all competing against each other for like a mid three, four, five level. Mm. That kind of makes sense, right? Because we yep. still have a lot of our our athletes that are play high level. Our blockers are coming from the indoor team, right? We've got a lot of combo athletes coming that that aren't there in the fall, and so when our you know top players start getting treated a little bit differently, or there's some we let them get away with some of these big emotions that other players are exhibiting, but we're like, no, 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 you, you're this is your first year here. What do you think you're doing? You know, we have to be very careful around that. Right. So that's why I like having those conversations outside of practice. Hey, while you're here, we do what's best for the team and you're here to make your teammates better. You know, we're, we're, we're leading that generative life. We're trying to help create that atmosphere where we're going to give more than we consume and then offsite or outside of practice. Let's now talk about your needs and how I can better coach you to satisfy that, to get you to be the best version of yourself. Right. Or how can your partner help that? And, that's when we sometimes check players and go, okay, what you're asking is so unrealistic. It's never going to happen. Or, you know what? I'm sorry. I never thought of that. I'm sorry. I'm, I've been closed minded and I didn't think of that for you. Um, and that's where I think a lot of growth happens for our program is we were so willing and, and my assistant Christian, he's so, we're so inviting to those conversations that we get a lot of growth out of players for that reason. And so I think we avoid a lot of those big outbursts in practice because the door is always open to have that conversation outside of practice. So, you know, we're not, I'm not here to say that we never have those. I think we have probably our fair share of them just as many as any other top program, but I think we're, we're, we're nipping it in the bud pretty quickly, right. With, with the first try Mm. just because we have some good mechanisms and we're, we're, we're inviting of that, right? Like we invite players to be authentic and to understand their point of view and why would that cause them to act that way, like getting, like understanding someone when they fail. I think so often people are like, Hey, you just, you know, we're, we're going to, you just didn't bring it today and we're going to sweep it under the rug. And next day you got to be more competitive or like you said, more fiery or, you know, whatever. I think breaking down what actually is, is, is preventing us from being a better version is important, right? I think that's where a lot of our conversations will get to and it's not easy right like you're dealing with an 18 17 18 year old and asking them to you know be a big adult here and and, and articulate feelings that they no one has ever held them accountable for and articulating so feelings is not easy like understanding what you felt why you felt it where it came from and then like being able to apply or control it correct that's it's not easy <laughs> yeah so so i think just n- normalizing that and inviting them to share 
is the first step. And so that's why I think, you know, when we look at how do we approach the various levels of player in that hierarchy, because no matter how much we try to break that down there's just a natural hierarchy of power ranking of you know hey this player's the ones and we're not really you know she's kind of solidified her spot she's now a senior right whereas these are freshmen there's no hazing that goes on that's long gone but it's just a matter of right you know that that maturity and there's just naturally with a 22 or 23 year old there's a little bit more confidence and so i think those those younger players feel that imposter syndrome and hide from it whereas we try to bring them to the forefront and, and let them know, hey, we're only going to be good if you guys can jump on board with this. And until you do, we're going to kind of be plugging more holes than we, you know, than fingers, right? Like we're yeah. going to have 11 holes for 10, 10 fingers. So I think it's important that, you know, we, we for uh, at least that's how our program is doing it. And it's, and it's been, you know, a healthy way for players to then understand, hey, what is appropriate in practice and when can you have your outbursts? Because we still want you to be able to, you know, emote, like that's a huge part of the sport. And that's the, you know, the culture of the sport, right? When you watch it on the professional level, these players are emoting. They're not just staying blue the whole time. Right. But, but now, um, are you having those conversations with, with your AVP teams when you get to the pro, like when, you know, you're coaching, uh, Jer and Bill, I think, uh, and, uh, Chase and, uh, Troy, super high emotional kind of yeah. a high mix, but like likes to play positively much like Casey, are you having as many of these talks about how they're regulating or what, what they like to play at with the AVP? Are you talking about it very differently than you do with your college women? You know, the framework is the same. I've, I've had some, so I've coached AVP for four years. I was with Jeremy and came that first year. Kame, and that was, that was like the epitome of complimentary personalities, right? Like they, they just gelled and they knew their goal was to win. And they both got their first win in Seattle. That was really cool to be a part of. And I think that really worked. Like I look back on that Seattle tournament and we didn't scout, we didn't watch film. We just literally went out. There was like this street there. We went out and listened to these high school kids playing rock music. And we like partied with these, not partied, you know what I mean? We hung out with these parents of these rock band kids and we were just they just were there. They were in tune. They were authentic. They knew what they wanted. And Jeremy goes on an absolute tear on Sunday and came played some great defense inside out behind them. Right. Like they just felt so comfortable that it was very easy for them to be the best versions of themselves as, as players. So for me, there wasn't much conversation that needed to be happening around, hey, some of the emotional because there just wasn't very many emotional conflicts. Jeremy was intense focus but high energy came was a little bit more calm. You know, he's your friendly Canadian, right? He didn't want to piss anybody off his first year as an American U S citizen. Right. So I don't want to get kicked out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there was just a a natural balance. Right. And then you take it to the next year with the the quarantine year, which was super weird because you practice for five months with, I I was with came and, and chase. So it was smoke and mirrors, right? They were having great practices, nothing on the line. We didn't ever need to have any conversations. And then you get, Bam, bam, bam. Three straight weeks of tournaments with very well, you know, they made it to Sunday each tournament. So we took Monday off. We went light Tuesday. Like there was never time. And because we didn't travel, there was never any opportunity to really connect with one another. I was very shy because I was like, man, Chase is kind of intimidating. Came, I kind of know a little bit, but I was still huge imposter syndrome, like second year coach, never have played these guys. Like I remember when I played high school against Chase, he was, I was an oppo. He was an outside. That dude was probably three feet above my block, bouncing balls, 
hitting my setter in the head. I was like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. So there was just this like natural intimidation. Right. Mm. And so that was just a very tough year to have conversations. And then, so I was like, okay, Hey, I need to put my big boy pants on and I'm not going to let it happen this year with Chase and Casey. Like Casey's intimidating. He's an Olympian. He's you know done so much winning second year with Chase. I kind of earned his respect after that first year I stuck with him. He, you know, we had a good trust thing going on. We, you know, we worked a lot one-on-one because Casey was living out in the Valley. So we didn't get to practice as much with him. Whereas right. Chase and I are both in the South Bay. So I did so many individuals with Chase and we just, connected just because we've been around each other so much so well, what um, are those conversations like when when you're working with chase one-on-one is it him saying hey mike i need this or you saying what do you want to work on or are you saying hey chase i think we have to add this to your game and if you come yeah. to a, a disagreement there what happens that that's it's tough when there's only two or three there's no hierarchy it's always yeah. like yeah. So, so what does an individual, I guess, you know, with Chase look like when you decide what you want to do? Do you go back to your bird's eye view and say, okay, this is where we're trying to get this month. So in order to do that, this is how this practice has to look or how, does he have a, a lot of input as well? Yeah, well, it was definitely a lot of input both ways. I think we we, we, we sat down and watched a lot of film. I think that was what made it easy. Every Monday morning I went to his house. We were watching film. We, you know, identified. That was something we started doing with Kame and Tyler Hildebrand when they were kind of in with USA. And then when that frayed and that split, it was something we just kept doing. And so we said, hey, this is off-season training. What do you want to get better at? Serving and pulling. So we did like two straight hours of just very generic. Like, like he understood that building skills takes time. And I think that was just made it so easy for me because that's how I think I'm like, you've got to have an understanding of great mental image of what you're trying to work on. What is it? What do you look like doing it? Which is why him watching film was such a nice thing because, you know, he was watching it from like a biomechanic sense and not a judgmental sense. Like, Hey, what do I look like? Oh man, I look so stupid or damn, that looked really cool. Let's post that on Instagram. You know, like it was more just, how can I get better? Cause I need this skill to win. Even though he knew like pulling, he would only use that once a game, but we went out and did thousands and cataloged thousands of pulling reps where now it's just, people think he's just athletic. And I'm like, dude, we worked so hard on getting him to pull and react quickly to a hard driven ball. Like I was hitting, I mean, I don't hit nearly as hard as you guys, but I was hitting some hard balls off of a 40 inch box crushing him from, you know, trying to shorten the time he had to react. And it, it, we just built that skill. Right. So it and was just rep on rep. It wasn't, yes. I, I mean, I think I see a lot of coaches trying to come up with libraries of drills and for chase, who's somebody who understands it, maybe kind of like that Kobe mindset of shooting threes for three hours. Yeah. Like, no, I'm just shooting threes for three hours. Yeah. I move a little bit, right. I move a little bit left. I take a step back, but I just have to, train my body to make this three. Is that the kind of practices that you guys were running where it's just, yeah. we're so, out here repping the same thing for an hour and a half until your body masters it. And don't get me wrong. I tried to get creative and I just, you're right. It just, we had to just do three months of the same thing a couple times a week. I mean, it wasn't two hours, you know, it was about 30 to 40 minutes of it. And then we would do something different. So we would still, you know, touch on other skills to keep it fresh. Cause again, I'm routine. I was like, this is easy. I just hit, hit, hit but I don't want players to get bored and I get it. Right. So, so we would try to, to give it a little flair every now and then, but, but, but 
in its essence, it was just repetitions. It was cataloging very diligent, deliberate, you know, diligently planned and deliberately executed repetitions so that we knew that when we were in a game and I was like, hey, dude, right, right hander on the right, sets coming over his shoulder, pull, pull seam and just dig a ball. He said he, he would know that language. He's like, got it. Right. I didn't need his partner to know what we were talking about. I just needed him to be ready to make that play at 19 all if our serve connected or, you know what I mean? Just yep. being able to have the confidence that you built that skill. Then when, as a coach, I can ask you to do it with confidence. I'm not drawing up some play going, oh, man, I hope this works. Like I was like, if this happens, if A happens, I know B will happen. Now, I don't know C, us getting a kill will happen, but I know we'll get a great opportunity, which, as you know, as a hitter, that's all you can ask for is a swing yeah. for the game. If you have a swing for the game and you have a decent hitting percentage, more times than not, it's going to go your way. Right. Yeah. So, so we were trying to get to that level. And so working with him was really I don't want to say easy, but it was it was easier because he was so invested in the film review and the film study and coming to to that. And that's why I said it was both of us. Right. Like I built the drill and he picked the skill. And so a lot of those skills oftentimes on my list would match up. And so there was just natural synergy there. So we were really jazzed up when our skills matched up. So emotionally, how many, you know, the conversations we didn't really get into because it was just let's keep it straightforward. He wants to get better at this. This is how you do it. That second and third year when I worked with him. He, you know, he understood, okay, this is a guy who kind of knows what he's talking about. I got him. Like, we're going to get it done. And so, um, you know, that third year with Casey, that's what we were able to build, right? And Casey was super inclusive and super inviting of my ideas, knowing that he's like, I need a third set of eyes. Like, I, I know that there's things that I do that I, I get very tunnel vision on, and I need you to reset me, or I need you to tell what me. What ideas does Casey have after such a long career that he invites you to to mitigate or, or what, you know, as a, as a coach who's way younger with actually like less experience, but he's hired you as a coach. What do you think that you bring that he doesn't see? Or do you say, Hey, do you see this? Or is it just your voice that needs to be there? You know, what, when you say that, that he invited you in some different ideas, yeah. what ideas did you have that he hadn't yet experimented with or tried? Yeah, most of it, it wasn't tech, uh, technical, that's for sure, right? I'm not going to go out there and say, hey, Casey, this is how your hand set. I was like, Texas funny hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wasn't trying to fix the passing or anything. I, I was I, the arm swing hitting from his left shoulder. I, all I tried to do was enhance some of his strengths, right? So knowing that he hit left shoulder, I was like, hey, you have to clean stage every time. If I was playing you, I would serve you to this zone because it takes away a certain element of your staging, which makes you more predictable, which over time, if I'm playing you for 21 points, I know late, if I'm in a game, I can get you over time because I've got the pattern. And that's just, so I would say, hey, if I was scouting, this is what it would look like. And so that idea of like really nailing things so he would keep all of his options. So like, you know, as a righty on the right, if he kicked out, there was, he would lose some of his power down the line. Whereas, you know, so his teams would start running twos against him and he would miss some of the day. So there was, there were certain tactical things that I was just tracking in a little notebook. Like, hey, you've hit six straight deep angles or sharp angles or cut shots. They might be picking up on this. Let's try staging this way. Open up your vision. And, you know, because he's the type of player that doesn't need a huge vert, right? So I was trying to make sure that at all times he had full vision and then he had his body line power so that if nobody ever got there, he could just quickly, you know, hit a ball, right? So so your job was to more recognize his patterns that he probably sure. can't pick up on like you know the difference between a, a 275 hitter and a 300 hitter 
um, one's in the Hall of Fame, one probably gets kicked out of the MLB pretty easily, is one hit every two weeks. Yep. You know, so it's like something we can't track on our own. But your job was to pick up on those tendencies and then yeah. try to suggest and, solutions that. And most help. of it, most of it, because Casey's just such an experienced defender that I wasn't going to change where he started or what he saw, but I was calling plays from like, hey, this could be a pattern, right? This player's hit when he's in trouble, high line. Right. So let's set that up however you want to set it up. Hide behind Chase, flash out early, do a juke. I don't care. But we're going to get beat on a cut shot. We are not going to get beat on a high line at 2019 when it's our game point. Like we are going to be on that. So that was some of the ideas was, okay, let me track that tendency or the pattern. Let me catalog it and give it to you guys. And if you want to use it, use it. I'm not, I have no ego in this. I mean, it is. I'm making such a small percentage of, 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 I have such a small impact. If I can steal you guys one or two points late, I think that was really a big con- contribution for him, right? Is being able to just get him into a spot that he might've already done, but it just gave him the confidence to do it because the numbers backed it okay. or because my set of eyes completely, you know, granted I'm biased. I want them to win, but very unbiased because I'm not the one running around getting beat, right? Either the ball lands or it gets ducked. But he's like, no, 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 I'm trying. I just said, hey, this is where the ball's going. Build it how you want. You're going to get the dig, and you're going to you're going to transit and have a chance, right? And you know, Casey, more times than not, on transition on game point, he's putting balls away, right? That's that's a that's yeah. that's a tough person to stop on transition game point. So I think that's where I probably had my biggest impact was more on the scoring phase, and then the side out phase. It was more about just little staging things and little arm mechanic things. Just saying, hey, you're getting a little tired. It's 110 degrees out. Maybe you're dropping your elbow. So let's factor that in. Let's not try to go for that sharp cross court where Try is going to just grab it and clamp you, right? Like reminders just- of things that we're supposed to know, but just you know, like. Why, why would a professional athlete have a personal trainer? You know, you've been doing it for 30 years. It's give you that reminder so that you optimize in that moment that, that you need to. So you are still giving technical ad- advice. It's just, mm-hmm. but for, I guess, for guys at, at this level, it's, it's reminders to stay that little extra 1% that's going to make that Correct. difference. in that. Moment. Yeah. Because if we can, the more I was able to give those reminders and he checked, it was just like you said, those 1%, those little things add up to big things. And that can, I mean, without knowing, I, I mean, you know, I can't predict anything, but sitting there, if there was an opportunity to do that, I said, I don't, I'll have a regret if I don't say this or give this idea. Now, if he doesn't use it, maybe then that's his regret, but at least it was said, we can debrief on it or we can go, Hey, next time, don't tell me that. Like I did that with Chase once. I was like, dude, let's mix the serve up. And he's like, Mike, I just got two aces. Why the hell would you tell me to mix up my serving? Cause then he missed the next two serves. And I was like, Ooh, okay, my bad. I won't do that again. You know what I mean? So it's not always clean. I can't sit here and tell you that everything we did was perfect, but it definitely was more about, you know, the tendencies and trying to get them, like I said, stimulate some ideas and then using their experience um, to our advantage and letting them kind of run with it. Right. And just saying, Hey, this is what I do. Well, Mike told me this is where the ball's going. That's the idea. We want to stop that. I'm going to go do it this way. If you're, if you're at a tournament, so let's, let's pull this back to kind of a a big bulk of our audience, which is a lot of uh, B to double a tournament players. Mm -hmm. If you have five or Let's, let's call it you have 10 minutes to scout a team and you have no film. Yeah. What, what is the easiest homework or thing that you could give to somebody who hasn't played for 15 years, but what do they look for? 
and then what could they implement uh, to to play their next team? So they're you know they're refing their pool play match, and they're going to play that yeah. team next. What would this person look for specifically, or count, or try to pick up on? Yeah, great question. So I think you know the first, and and that's that's an environment where always in at the collegiate level too, is sometimes, you know, the top teams you're getting filmed, but sometimes you're in a tri-duel and you're playing Coastal Carolina. We've never played them. We've never mm -hmm. seen them. They're a good team. We know they're going to bring it, but we're, you know, we, we played the first match, they played the second match, and then we play each other the third match. So we got to see them, right? So I, I, I try to tell the players, hey, let's categorize as best we can each player's side out. What are their tendencies? Are they a shooter? Are they visual? Are they a spiker? Right. And that at least gives us a, a starting point of how we want to defend them. Is there a moment that you know that they're that? Like, is it in warmups? Is it the way they open the game, or is it when they're in trouble? I like to I like to say the first two, you know, side switch. That first side, what are they doing? Right? Are okay. they going to their high line? Are they kind of getting up there, delaying, looking? You know, they kind of, you know, all players like to establish rhythm, right? So, so I say, hey, what are they doing to get in rhythm? Right now, if there's a huge side advantage that obviously breaks a little bit, but if it's a neutral game, you can kind of just say, Hey, this is a rhythm player based on their shooting, their spiking, or their visual. Right now, it's a little different on the men's side. I think probably most people default to spiking. Right? I think there's a few that'll be what I call combo where they'll, you know, like a Casey, right? He's going to spike the balls he should spike, he's going to shoot the balls he's going to shoot. He's very hard to strategize against right but um you know the vast majority you're looking at crunch time moments after a timeout after a mistake right when they do get a little frustrated what is their next play right are they what does the timing look like do they move do they change tempo do they change location of swing do they kick out right like little nuances that become big patterns right like if you're the type of player that anytime you make a mistake you shoot high line right that's something that's important to know and as a defender I need to choose my moment to go get that ball. Do I give you six high lines to start the game knowing that, you know, hey, Mark's a top player. I'm, I'm lucky if I can get into a 1919 game, but at 1919, when I'm serving, I'm going for that high line. And is Mark going to hit that ball? You know, so it's like just, just having a plan, I think, is important. And then if you're wrong, you're wrong. But going in and just, I think too often people are like, oh, we'll just ball read we're good we'll ball read right you go block i'll go defend we'll figure they it get out pissed off after every single lost point correct, when there's correct. no actual defensive strategy to yeah, and, then, and then for that whole next 10 seconds between you when you serve to, to us all we're talking about is hey dude how did you not see that or body language right like if you're a blocker and they shoot high line and you were ball reading and you're like how the, did you not see that and i'm like i don't know i was ball reading cut shot right like you guys will be stuck on that thought Meanwhile, they just short serve ace you or they short serve you option right into their plan. Right. This is a game of chess. Right. So the more you can think cleanly and clearly, um, the better. So if you can and you can be wrong, but just going in with a plan of, hey, this is how we're going to attack and this is how we're going to defend. But I say that with a caveat of don't play to your weaknesses. Right. Play to your strengths. And what, what I mean by that? by that. Yeah. What I mean by that is if they are a spiker, but you're a terrible blocking team, don't stay and block. Find a way where if you're a good serving team, amp up your serving and say, hey, if we miss five serves, it's worth it because we're going to get them out of system. And now I can pull and I don't have to stay and block as much. So I eliminated their spiking range. OK, and now I can pull into that range or I can slide my defender into that range. Right. So just instead of trying, oh, crap, these guys are going to spike every ball. So I've got to now block and figure out how to leverage and go out of body and run a lot of fours or short serve them and do this 
try to eliminate their strength with one of your strengths. So it takes a little bit of time to do that. Cause again, if you're not a good blocker, but you're crushing balls and bouncing balls, I'm in a natural tendency want to stay and get involved. That's what they want you to do. You're playing right into their hands. That's when they'll just shoot over or whatever. Right. So I think just balancing that is important. Right. Whereas if, it, if it's, you take it from the, the lens of like, okay, well, I'm not a super great blocker, but now you go into a match and you try to get, five blocks when you've never gotten more than two or three statistically or you're five, eight and you're still, yeah, you know, they're trying to stop the six, six getting mad that you don't block. Cause <laughs> when you do that, you'll notice. And again, that's the beauty of our sport is we have so many statistical tools that mm -hmm. professional players don't have access to. Like we film every practice we film and, and stat every match. The players have a database where they can go on and click matches for the last eight years and get all the stats from it right so they depending on how much they want to research they can see and we set goals for them hey like if you're siding out at 67 percent, then your serving percentage theoretically needs to be 33 percent or higher to win a game right uh -huh. they can they can pull that data and they right then and there they're like oh you're right i sided out at 50 percent, but i scored at 55 so, you know, it's a sliding scale. So that, you know, that usually applies for our lower pairs, like our fives, we're playing a lot more pull and a lot longer rally, right? You know, the side out yeah. drops a little bit, the lower levels. Um, but at the ones, twos, threes, I mean, you're siding out 70%, you're usually pretty safe, right? Whereas if it's, you know, 60%, you're not as safe as you might think you would be at a more professional level. So the, you know, I don't know where I was going with that, but but, but having access to that, I think, helps the players make certain decisions about how to match up against another team, right? When you're when you're you've come up with a strategy and you said, like, you have to have a strategy. And I very much agree. I think that people play one point at a time. And when I when I see them play or get upset, I'm like, you're playing checkers. You know, you're playing like little kid checkers where you just move a piece and then you're still upset that you haven't you know jumped a piece yet instead of this long game of figuring out what I'm trying to do, what balls I'm trying to get or what balls I think that they're going to hit and when I'm going to dig them, you know, versus like sitting there and playing that read game. But do you have any advice for players when they choose a strategy or a I'm only going to dig hard cross and high line? Yeah. How long before should they go continuing to not pick up a ball? Yeah. Before they should change their strategy. Yeah, I think it varies. So like with Troy and Chase, we go like two or three balls. And I say two or three because the caveat is serving. If we're serving the ball well, then maybe there's like, okay, hey, let's let three balls go because that might have been the anomaly, right? Okay. Whereas if we're not serving the ball well, then it's two It's two balls. Like after two, if we're, we're running the play and they've figured it out, we might need to change the play or change the look or serve the other guy or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's usually we give it two opportunities, right? Because again, this should all be happening after you've established the pattern that you expected is true right oh. so you know this isn't point oh, one. so you don't you don't enter a point blind against another team and try something twice and then change it you know it depends right so like when we played usc this year i told my team i want you guys executing on your patterns right away because i want us having a lead like we need to play with a lead against that type of team Whereas maybe it's a conference team that we've beat historically. I go, hey, just get into rhythm, right? If you want, if that helps you and you want to go do line double ups, the first five serves, because that's going to help you side out better, then go ahead. But typically for us, if we can side out those first couple sides well, 
we're in a lot of games um, against any team ranked in our area or below us. Mm -hmm. Now those top teams, that's where we'll tinker with strategy depending on matchup and or how we want to start a game, right? So I think, you know, to the players I'm speaking to that are listening, it's it's really about your game and what, you know, kind of how you want to play that team for that moment, right? Like if you want to, again, if you have the confidence in your abilities to side out and then everybody scores points, right? Like nobody plays a perfect match. If you know that you can stay in it, then yeah, sit on some of those patterns a little bit. Don't show your hand, right? Knowing that, hey, they think they might be ahead of you, but no, 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 you know what's coming late and you know how you're going to neutralize that. Or if you're the type of player that has to get an early start, then use them early. But you better have the strengths and confidence to problem solve late because you know they're not going to just keep doing whatever you're stopping, right? I mean, nobody's just, that's the definition of insanity, right? Hey, I'm just going to keep doing the same thing with negative result, right? No player at the competitive level would not make an adjustment of some sort. So I think the better you are at problem solving, the probably the earlier you can show your hand because you know that they are going to problem solve right back, but you're staying ahead of them because you were expecting it. Whereas maybe a less experienced player or just a really good side out player is like, I'm good. I know it's going to come late and I'll get it late. Like, so we're, you know, just a personal anecdote here. That's what I'm balancing with Troy and Chase is like, when do we, you know, Chase is like, I want it done right away. Like we knew it was coming. Why did we not get it? And Troy's like, well, I'm seeing 10 of them and I know I can get two of them. And that could be the difference in a game is me picking and choosing. So we saw in Austin that worked for Troy, right? We saw it worked. He had a great tournament and he was digging some crazy balls, transitioning some balls. They made it to the finals. It didn't go their way. They faced a really, really good team that played out of their mind, you know, or maybe that was just what that team played all tournament. They know, really good. And then the next term, they tried that and it didn't work, you know, so it's just constant calibration at that level. But if you're not, like you said, B to double A, triple A range, I think you're watching a team, you're developing like, okay, this is kind of their tendencies. This is kind of their style of play. This is their go for it server. This is their, you know, uh, this is this blocker's six, seven, like, like we got to move him, right? Like those are things that are pretty generic, I think, is once you identify it, it will work, but it's your job to not abuse it. And it's your job not to wait too long to use it. Does that sure. kind of make sense? So yeah. that's why. Well, again, to me, it's like that movie. Um, it's I think it was Steve Prefontaine, where Steve Prefontaine, like he was a distance runner, and he was like, I can run faster than every single person on this track at all times. So he wanted to go all out mm-hmm. the entire time. It sounds like that was Chase, and yeah. then his coach was teaching him about pacing, about like saying like, yep. no, like stay even and then burn them late, and you'll be a better runner. And they just completely butt heads on it and in the end they found i actually i don't think i watched the end but either way he won a gold medal right (laughs) correct well and that's the tough part is like balancing that right like again your players are the ones in it and experiencing it so you have to kind of give some you know you got to give way to them a little bit you know their their lens is although sometimes it can get emotional typically they have a pretty good read for it at the at the professional level so you know it's tough to balance that because like you said to me, 21-19, I'm going to remember that's a win, right? Or 15-13 and third. But these players are like, no, 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 it's personal, man. I I should be beating Mike Campbell 10 out of 10 in two sets. We are not playing the long haul. We are going to punch this guy in the face, and we are not going to let him punch back. We're going to put our foot on his neck. You know, Sorry, a little graphic here. But yeah. we are going to come in with that type of mindset because we this is this is a statement. So the next two times we play them, they don't even have a shot. So I think it, it, it does need to, there's, you know, there's, there's, it oscillates, you know, and I, I, I hate saying that because there's no definitive answer, but I think you just have to kind of weigh, 
you know, yourself, your abilities, who you're playing, how you want to approach that game. And is it a team you should be sending that message to, or is it a team that maybe they're trying to do that to you and you need to play a little bit more of that longer, you know, longer drawn out strategy. It, it, I think it varies a little bit. Can you give one example? So I think, I think most players don't try to pay attention to what other players are doing or their tendencies or like what their shot is after they make an error or what their next swing is after they have a kill. Like, do they just repeat, 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 or do they randomly change it up after they've gotten three kills hard cross in a row and they just decide that they have to hit high line to change it up. So do you have, not do you have, can you give me a specific way to stop a specific shot? So let's choose either, cut shot cross or high line how would you design a defense to stop that sure so let's use the example of and this is very common for our program like we will go at spikers like we love making spikers turning them into shooters right so i'm just using those categories of offensive types right so for a spiker traditionally like you'll see a lot of combination athletes outside hitters that are playing left side they like kicking out right so we will serve deep right shoulder seam at a left side player right so we'll try to pinch them in take away that that kick out approach so we can read their body line a little bit better right because on the angle as a right-handed player you've got a lot of options right you can go body line cross you can turn it you can tool it you can hip pivot there's just so much range so if we can eliminate that angle body line and turn it into more of like a stacked approach and make hitters hit thumb down where there's a little bit less control there's a net that gets in the way there's a block that could get you that helps us because then we can kind of read the pattern of shot a little bit better right so that was you know that was a big thing for us is finding a way to serve a spiker into the seam at the right time right hey let's serve short let's serve deep let's serve spin at her let's let her kick out a couple times let's run some ones let's run some fours let's pull let's delay like let's get her kind of getting you know her her shots in and her swings in and then seven six we're up we're serving let's steal a point right now so we call it bait right like let's bait them into this pattern so let's chip a like a witty high deep middle serve back that spiker up hopefully they kind of get a little lazy with their approach they come in we run a four they pop pop the high line and a defender's on it right because that would that would just be a theoretical does it work of course not every time but it gives us something that our blocker will just do a great job funneling our defender will hold and trust the play and if she hits a cut shot great if she spikes it we're on it now obviously if it's tight set our blocker isn't just going to dive they're going to block ball right but typically on that play you're getting a cut or a high line not not, no spiker i shouldn't say no but a majority of spikers aren't going to just jumbo out of that play right they're not going to just hit a loopy angle not at our level not at our like pro reserved one (laughs) it's where they know you're trying to jam them into a short corner and it's correct correct so if we can get a you know a spiker who's not used to getting served a lot then we serve them a lot and they kind of use their best shots we can plan for this we have the pattern we have the trigger which is that stacked approach that doesn't kick out we run the play with confidence and we and and, and more times than not you know if you're using it at the right time if you set it up the right way you're going to get something you can stop whether it be a block like a bad low angle swing or they maybe sometimes turn it and spike it out of bounds because they're just a little bit out of sorts or they'll just pump that high line right to our player which is what we were kind of setting up is there something that you 
is that something that you put on repeat, repeat, repeat till it works? Or do you yeah. set it up with two serves in a different area so that that then like now's our snap time? Okay, laid the trap. They got comfy. We let them get two cross kills, let's say. Yeah. Now we serve them middle, making them go for the same cross. That's a good question. I think it's 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 hard to categorize. I think at the higher levels, it's a more about building the pattern. And like you said, like, let's do a couple of these serves to get them uncomfortable. And then when they do this, maybe they hit this once and then we do it again and we keep it the same, knowing they're going to use their other option. Right. Whereas if we keep changing it and she keeps changing it and she's always right and we're always wrong, we're never scoring points. It can get really frustrating. But the lower levels, what I do with them is it's all about failure recovery down there for me, because that's a much more emotional game sometimes, right? Where they're playing long rallies, there's momentum swings, there's just so much going on there that a little bit of tactics goes a long way, right? Because I, I kid you not, a majority of those games are going three and they're nail biters. They're, they're like, they're going all the way, man. 21, 19 in the third set, like they're going way, you know, overtime deuce games past the number 15, you know? So I think in those games, we talk a lot about like, Hey, this player just made a mistake. She's kind of reeling here a little bit. Let's set her up. Let's bait her into this swing. And if they side out, so be it. But if we're in a side out game like that, we have to be taking some risks because that's the only way we're going to finish it off. They're not going to just hit in our lap. Like mm -hmm. that game is so much about movement, like shot movement, usually that, you know, we need to be ready for that, right? Like you're not typically going to win a game from your blocker at that level. You're going you're gonna to see a lot more dig, transition, kill to win a game, right? You don't right. see big servers at that level winning you games. Again, typically, there's going to always be that anomaly, mm -hmm. right? But at the ones, twos, threes, you're getting big jump servers. You're getting big physical blockers going out of body, doubling up. A lot more like what we see on the AVP and World Tour, right? Where, you know, you got... I mean, the ones and twos are World Tour players. Correct, in, in, right? In You've got right now. Taylor Sanders stepping to the lineup one, you know, and, and Taylor Crap stands at the net to block. We all know what's going on there, right? The guy's just going to bomb a serve, mm -hmm. right? Like you're, you're seeing that at the higher levels where I think that is more about strengths and then the lower five, you know, I don't want to say lower levels. I think everybody's really good, but just in the, in the, in the traditional ranking scheme, one through five, the four, five, sixes level, you're going to see a little bit more of, like you said, it's just the one-off like, Hey, try the play right here because we've done this or we know that's her pattern. Like that is how she's going to score a point. That's why I call it failure recovery, right? Like when there's a big momentum swing, that next play we've got to have a plan for, because if it goes our way, we could win this game. Right. And that's where it's like, that's the one off is like, okay, Hey, what was the error? What is she going to do to recover from that error? Is it going to be her cut? Is it going to be her swing? Is it going to be her shot? Now let's play for that. Right. So then I let the team pick what that you know, what that answer is, but at least we know we've kind of categorized and you know, what we're expecting and you know, it, it helps, right. It, it definitely helps give your players a little bit of clarity and that way they're not, overthinking the next point, the most important point, right? Is if they don't get that set up, that bait play, now it's tie game and they go back and they're pissed off. Mm. Whereas we just offloaded, hey, that was our call. That was our plan. Blame us. Don't blame each other or yourself and then risk losing the next play against their setup play. Because you know they're trying to run the same stuff, right? I love as a coach trying to take out the what if in players 
you know, where they're questioning and they don't know what they should go for if yeah. as a club coach or a high school coach. Um, and then even as an AVP coach, when you can't give them the now's when we run this play, it's you have scenarios and you say, this is what we do after X. Yeah. You know, and, and then at least they can have the, the confidence when they don't know what they want to do to be like, all right, well, our default is here. Yeah. And it's, that's a, it's a good, it's nice to have trust in a play and in a system like that when you can, I, I know even like, you know, from my experience, from, from everybody else's experience that when you're at 1919 or, or 2020, you're just kind of wondering what play to run, what play to run. And there's not enough time before that whistle blows. And then you just yeah. kind of like, I guess we'll do this. Yeah. You exactly. know, or you just throw some fingers up behind Correct. you. And that's the biggest, of, uh, yeah. yeah sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. That's the biggest thing is just have a plan. And then you're taking out some of the speculation. And then usually the plan will match up with training, right? We don't want you to do something you haven't trained because then, or I'm sorry, maybe you've individually trained it, but your partner then turns around and is like, what? You just you just dug that ball? Like, what's going on? And then I'm not ready to set or I like, you know, double a ball because I was just like so in, in admiration of you, you know? And I'm like, crap, I got to be better. And now I go back there and I get aced, right? Like, there's just there's just so much, much value to that. And that's what I've come a long way. Like I did not do a very good job of that in my first year on the AVP or my first year coaching collegiate is I can package, I can hold a lot of information in my brain. Just, I enjoy film study. I enjoy strategy. Like I enjoy all that, yeah. but I realized my players aren't necessarily on the same page. And so I had to make it. Them. Yeah. I had to make it more, digestible for an eight second, you know, let's use FIVB, right? Like you get eight to 10 seconds between plays on average. I had to get something to them that they could digest or at the collegiate level, you're getting anywhere from 30 to 60 seconds in timeouts or side or side switch out of those, that time players probably need half of it to just get over whatever they're feeling. You know what I mean? Cause they're either upset or they're way too excited, yeah. right? Very rarely are you just Okay, I'm ready for all this information. Yeah, making sure your partner's emotionally okay, and uh, yeah, you're high fiving. Yeah. You got to worry about which side to switch to. You don't want to bump into. Do I high five the other player? Do I avoid awkward? <laughs> There's all these things that are coming into it, right? And so then I get about what 10 to 15 seconds with a player or two. So I had to just give one nugget of information, right? Like just keep it to one piece of information that would help for the next seven points on the collegiate side and or for the next one point on the AVP. Because now seven points is so brilliant. Oh, I wish more club coaches would hear that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, instead it's, of the one tip per point and it's, it's retroactive. It's what yep. just happened instead of yep. what's going to happen. It's so like, that's, is- that's, that's where I, and I, I fell short so many times and I was like, okay, a lot of reflection, a lot of player exit interviews leading me to this conclusion. We have to just move on. And as a coach, there's nothing more frustrating than, than you watching your players break the plan or go rogue is what we call it, right? Where they're just going and doing something completely outside the box of training. Even if it's good, I know that they're not mentally engaged the way we need to be to beat some of these teams, right? So on the side switch, you've got to hold your tongue. You just got to go, hey, moving forward, we're trying this. Right. And that was something I worked with Zana Muno for one like little mini season during that pandemic year. And she was like, Mike, you are confusing the crap out of me. Just tell me what to do. And I was like, <laughs> you got it. And so that that was nice to hear a player. And she was young, but it was nice to hear a professional That's a mature thing to say to, to come at Just, coach and say, you need to be clearer for me. 
Correct. And, and to have the confidence. And, and I, we had a previous relationship, so she felt really confident. But it was very eye-opening for me knowing that, man, I do that to my college players too. And they're probably just too afraid to say something. I'm giving them way too much. Not necessarily retroactive. A lot of it was proactive or, you know, for, for future plays. But it was just information that they're like, what did, what did he just say? I'm just going to do the same thing. And I'm like, no, you know, so, so I think it was it was a, a really good thing to hear that early on. And then it just makes it just streamlines your the, the impact as a coach that you can have where, you know, again, we want to control so much, but we can't collegiately. It's built in. You can't seven points plan for seven. Give them something they can use that will score them one or two points. You're not going to win all seven. It's just not going to happen. Like no team will give you a 7-0 side without ultimate failure. And if that's happening, that team probably doesn't need a coach. You know what I mean? Like they're going to yeah. be okay. Right? I think but, that rule would make so many indoor coaches better as on the, coaches. Yeah, that they can't give feedback every point. Yeah. You know, it's like cool how thought. do I bunch the next seven points of advice right now? It's a cool thought. It, I mean, that I think would scare the heck out of a lot of coaches. Yeah, would. <laughs> that, would, that would be a heart attack for a lot of people. And there's been a lot because, you know, internationally, the coach can't even be on the sand. Right. Like I think they're trying to, you know, the referees, there's a certain element of respect that they want to keep the referees and the players. And that's the that's the group. Right. And I get that. You know, that's how they do it olympically. It makes sense. But I think for the way the AVP has changed it, it's been a nice I still don't you know, I'm not giving every point, but I'm calling some of those plays, you know, at the right moments or, yeah. right. Because I think that's important. Um, you know, like you said, in the grander scheme of things, pennies on the dollar, right. I'm not making a drastic amount. So I, why do I need to feel the need to exert so much control, right? Collegiately, it's a little tougher because it is your livelihood. You know, this is a big part of what you do. So, so it's nice to have that built-in framework where you cannot do too much, and overwhelm, but you can do enough to where you can impact a game and you can be held responsible as a coach for not, you know, getting your team where they need to be. Right. It, it, right. it is, you can't make an excuse. Oh, well, I couldn't say anything now you're getting enough now. So I think that the changes we've seen are, are helpful. And I always, I mean, I, I know every ref probably gives me the warning. I think every coach that is competitive gets a warning in a match, you know, Hey, not cheering anymore. Let's, let's bring it, let's scale it back. Mm -hmm. So, but I think uh, you do it respectfully. You can, you know, like I said, it can be a little gray, right? There's still some gamesmanship there, though. Yeah. Mike, I can't thank you enough for this talk. This uh, We touched in areas that I didn't expect to, and we went deeper in some of the areas that, that I was really happy to, to, to pick your brain about. And there's a bunch of questions left, but I have to work with my online players <laughs> uh, <laughs> in about 15 minutes. So I, I, I wish we had more time because I want to dive into AVP coaching and like yeah. what the the talks are about. So maybe we can can get you on again and tackle some some other topics. Yeah, but we'll, we'll have to change the rating of the podcast to rated R because those talks can get a little colorful. Let's just uh, preface it with that. A members only. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's the way I have this little time ticker in the top left of my screen here. I, it it this this flew by. So I, I think the conversation was awesome, and I hope everybody enjoys the subject and what we got into. And, I, you know, I'd love to, to chat more. And again, just very appreciative that you guys thought of me and invited me. And I feel like a, a very small, tiny little star in the solar system of beach volleyball, but I'm, I'm happy to always share because it was just growing up. I, I didn't even get to tell you my story growing up. It was such a big part of, of my 
childhood. So I want to share that and inspire others. And I think the, the game, the legends before us have, have set that precedent. We, it, we owe it to them to continue and to also enhance and to make it better for future generations. And so I would love to share more anytime. That'd be, that'd be great. And we will def bribe you into doing that. <laughs> Are there any uh, projects that, that you're working on going forward or any, anywhere or way that you want people to reach out to you or look for anything that you're doing? Any good uh, well, no, just, you know, I, I love, we love the support of our program here at Long Beach. I think our team, we've, we've really got a special group. You know, it's something I'm very, very proud of is the culture and every single player has, we've instilled and enhanced the already profound core values they've got. And so I would love the youth and or even the competitive group to just have a moment, if you ever do, just to check us out. I think it's it's really special. I think some of the, like I said, some of the passion and, and the specialness of this sport shines through our players. And so it's just a breath of fresh air. Even in a competitive environment, you can still smile. You can still play with joy. You can still play with fire, but reset to a place of joy. There's just a lot of cool things happening around the program. So I would love for anyone on the spectrum to come check us out in the beach volleyball world projects. I'm too busy for any projects. I wish I had some time with the family club coaching, the AVP coaching, the college coaching. There's a lot. So, but I'm putting my all into it. So I'm really proud of those, those things. So yeah, please come on out, check us out. Cool. And, and give you a high five at uh, the AVP tournaments when they're of course seeing you on center court. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, man. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it, man. Nice. Mike, thank you. Appreciate the talk. Have a great day. I know you're a busy man, but I uh, really appreciate your time. You bet. Take care. All right. Have a good one. How cool was that, that was uh, great. for an episode? So Mike, I mean, it, it's so intriguing to always to find a coach who has, is doing it at the NCAA level is doing it at the pro level knows everything there is to know and we didn't dive into it but i'm sure that he's coached juniors to know what it's like to play and compete and work with different athletes all along those different different mindsets and to pull experience from that it's fun to see that he takes his ncaa coaching and then with passion he goes and he coaches avp uh, of course, we don't know like behind the scenes w what deals uh, AVP players strikes up with with coaches, and it's I'll tell you from my experience, it's always different. It could be yeah. an hourly rate, it could be a daily rate, it could be work a couple of your hotels. You take ten percent of winnings. We really you just kind of make it up, and yeah, hopefully there's, people there's still infrastructure there. <laughs> yeah, but. It's awesome to see that, he, that he's going out with passion and, and continuing to coach. So if you guys, here's an idea. Look up Long Beach State University, their volleyball, their beach volleyball website. It is on the show notes. Check out their schedule. Go to a match. Take some friends. See what it's like to see an actual duel where you see five teams and sometimes two or three different schools competing at the same time. It would be awesome. Their schedule will be there. Uh, we're linking it. We also got Mike's Instagram down here so you can follow along with all his endeavors and, and what pro players and NCAA players he's coaching. And that is it. I'm, I'm happy with this episode. If you guys ever want to reach out or you know that we have, if you don't know, we have practice plans ready for you. We are running coaching clinics and we're starting a Better at Beach coaching certification. So if you are a coach and you either want to get better or you want to join the Better at Beach team and start changing some lives and being able to do it remotely from anywhere in the world, we would love to have you on the team. Just shoot me a message. Be stoked to have you there. 
and reach out if you guys ever have any questions or you need help. Uh, that's why we built the company and, and why we get to run such cool interviews like we just did. So that's all from me, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, go ahead and visit Long Beach State University. Go check out Mike on Instagram. And if you need any coaching advice or player advice or anything, you know to head to betteratbeach.com. We'll be there for you. All right. See you on the sand.